Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Today on The Action Catalyst, we are very excited because we're going to be interviewing Kimberly Ritzer. Kimberly serves as Vice President of Stores and also founding leader for EverEve. It's a rapidly growing Minnesota-based retailer of women's contemporary clothing, now at 85 stores and growing fast. The company has a terrific mission, and that is to inspire every mom to embrace her beauty and power. EverEve sells through retail stores, but also online at EverEve.com and through a subscription box service called TrendSend by EverEve. Kimberly's role day-to-day is to be responsible for everything that happens in the stores to ensure that every customer receives the very best possible experience and fashion guidance. She lives in Minnesota with her husband of 18 years and their two completely tame, always compliant children. (laughs) Kimberly, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you, Dan. It's really fun and exciting to be here. Good. If you don't mind, our, our listeners really appreciate autobiography. So would you mind briefly sharing the path that you took into the business world, maybe from the time you were in college up to your current role and hit some of the high points and main pivot points? Sure. Well, I was, I went to North Dakota state to school and that's in Fargo for the people that don't exactly know where that is. And I sold books for six summers. So I really used my college years to get as much experience as I could through, um, through selling books. Um, my experience with Southwestern really taught me a lot, a lot of skills. And I found I was good at selling tangible and intangible things. And, um, the other thing that I thought was really a great, I guess, experience that I got was I was taught from Southwestern how to be really good at interviewing. And I had more fun in the interview process than most people, which may sound a little goofy, but I I had, I want to say it was 10 interviews and 10 offers when I left Southwestern. And it was really flattering. It was that moment in my life where I thought, wow, I've really given myself some experience that I can use that makes me um, in demand in the workforce. So there was definitely some confidence leaving Southwestern, graduating from college and going into that real world, if we want to call it that. So I took a job in sales because everybody told me I was really good at sales and I, and I knew I was. Um, and, and what I what I found was I, my job was cold calling on law firms, the very first job I took, and it was challenging. I was good at it. I worked with some exceptionally talented and hardworking people. What I found, though, Dan, was I really didn't find any joy or fulfillment in the job. Um, I had a degree in fashion merchandising, a minor in business, and I really wanted to explore something in in that world. So I gave up my downtown apartment. I moved in with my parents and I took a job wrapping handbags with a base pay of $13,000 a year plus commission. So I'm sure my parents at that point were thinking, how on earth did we fail our daughter? Why is she, why is she taking this step back? (laughs) 
And for me, I thought it was an educated risk. So I had the entire United States plus, um, oh, I had the entire United States minus the Pacific Northwest as my territory. And there were two um, sales reps for the entire company, Vicky, who had the Pacific Northwest, and then me, who had the rest of the United States. So <laughs> the owner took um, a big risk on me and let me pioneer by cold calling on boutiques. And this is before we had Google, before we had MapQuest, before we had anything. I had to print out directions. I had to call and research on um, the yellow pages and you name it. I was literally showing up in a city, going up and down the streets and looking for boutiques where I could show these handbags. And I thought it was fun. Um, it, was, it was definitely a lot of hard work, but it, it was fun. And um, what I loved is that I got some extra experience that I hadn't anticipated through that job. So the owner of the company let me and the other sales rep, Vicky, be a part of the design team. What was fun about that was about three to four times a year, we would spend a few weeks in New York and we'd be sharpening and finalizing that line. And then we'd sell that line during market. So I'd make appointments with buyers from all over the country. And then I would show them our line in the New York showroom. So after a while, I felt I understood that whole side of the business. And that's really what I wanted to do is I wanted to get um, a, a real perspective on what the wholesale side look like, the buying office look like, I mean, you name it, I really wanted to understand it all. So after a while, I left that job and I wanted to understand helping from the buying office because I had really spent a lot of time with the buyers, helping them select the right line for their boutique or for their department store. So then I took a job in the buying office of Marshall Fields, downtown Minneapolis, as an assistant buyer, once again, taking another pay cut. So I guess if you if you really look at it from a modern perspective of today, I did a lot of leaning in to get experience before Sheryl Sandberg wrote that amazing book, Lean In. So um Anyway, so I worked my way to a planning role. Uh, in that job, I was responsible for planning an assortment of a $300 million business. And then I distributed it to 67 department stores. So the next promotion after I did that, that was a pretty hard job for me because numbers are not really my biggest strength. And that job was all analyzing. It was all in front of the computer all the time. And it really was hard for me. And yet I knew I was getting good experience once again. The next promotion from that would have been to a senior buyer, but I was really, really intrigued, Dan, with the idea of going into product development. So product development had intrigued me and I had a taste of it when I was designing some handbags and I thought that was something I might be good at. So through um, some hard work and through really making sure that I made some good connections, I continued to sell myself and make myself known and um, put myself out there. And I moved into the product design world at Marshall Fields. So again, another fun job. I designed everything from men's underwear to juniors and young girls, to young men's to little kids to home, which was um, quilts and duvets and soap pumps and you name it. And it was it was fun. The experience was it was really something you cannot learn in school. And it was something you learned every day. And it was a dream come true. 
It really was. We traveled to Western Europe three to four times a year. And we did that for color and trend and silhouette direction. And then three to four times a year, we traveled to the factories that made our product. So then I would go to Hong Kong. I'd go to mainland China. I go to Portugal. I go to India. It was fantastic. And it was a lot of hard work. Um, during that time, my husband, who was a sales director for Southwestern, also traveled, and he traveled even more than I did. Um, where we sort of landed was I, we were uh, married and we were getting ready to have a baby. And I was traveling a lot. He was traveling a lot. And we decided we really should have a parent staying home with our daughter, um, Peyton. And Tim's job paid more than mine. I, I really enjoyed mine, but it really wasn't the most lucrative. And we decided I'd be the stay-at-home parent. So after about two years of being a stay-at-home mom, I uh, was pregnant again with our second child. And I kept hearing about this woman that was opening her own boutique right in Edina where we live. And I had always wanted to own my own boutique and had slowly been giving up on that dream as a stay-at-home mom, feeling really overwhelmed and thinking, well, this is really kind of my destiny. I have decided I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to take care of these kids and my husband's going to work. And I've had a great career. I think I was about 35 or 36. And I thought, well, you know, I did my deal. I worked hard. I had a good job. I have had many great experiences. And, and this is really it for me. That's really where my perspective was at the time. So um, I, I had this, I guess you'd call it a serendipitous moment. Um, the boutique opened in November of 2004, and I went in that very first week to say hi. And there was this moment where I'd had a lot of people tell me, hey, you should, call, you should go see this girl, Megan. She's opening a store. You, I think you would really enjoy Megan. There's something about me that something about it that tells me that you would love her. I got a call from a girl I went to high school with and she said, Hey, I've got this new neighbor. Her name is Megan Tampty. She's opening a boutique. I really feel like something really tells me that you guys need to meet. And Dan, I heard that about four or five times. And that, it just felt like there was something I, I, I needed to know about this place or, or a reason I needed to meet this woman. So I went in and uh, it was the first week she'd opened her store. I was pregnant with my son, Roan. I had a two and a half year old on my arm. And I said, hi, congratulations. I just really wanted to say, I'm, I think it's incredibly courageous to open your own business. And I just wanted to stop in and check it out. I'm pregnant. I can't wear anything in your store, but I really think that you've done something brave and I admire that. And Megan looked at me. And her mouth kind of dropped open and she said, wow, tell me more about you. And she said, every single person that's walked in here this week has said, good luck. Or, wow, this must be hard. Or how do you do it? You have two little kids. And she said, I haven't had a lot of cheerleaders yet. And she said, tell me about you. And honestly, from that moment, it was, it, it felt like I was meant to be there. So I think the fun next step in this biography, if you want to call it that, is that um, Megan was a, a former third grade teacher. She had no retail experience or buying experience, but she had this dream and she had this vision and she wasn't sure what it looked like, but she knew she wanted to be a national brand. And I loved how the store smelled. I loved how it felt. I loved her vision. I didn't want to leave. And I knew I could help her. And man, does it feel good when you know you can 
let's call it air quotes, help somebody. So Megan tried to recruit me. I said, no, she tried again. I kept coming back to the store every day just for fun. I'd hang out there. Peyton, my daughter would play at the train table with all of the toys. I would talk to the customers and sit on the couch and, and just chat. And she knew I liked it there. And she would say, Hey, you should work for me. Let me get your advice. Or she would tell me how much she appreciated my opinion on something, or she'd asked me to come behind the cash wrap to look at something she was thinking about bringing into the store. And we really developed this quick friendship and this quick relationship. And I really enjoyed the fact that Megan valued my gifts. So that part really was uh, something that was kind of sticking in the back of my head. But I never, again, at that point, still thought of it as a career. So what I loved about Megan is that she had this confidence in her strength and in all of the strengths that she brought. And she was also very confident being vulnerable with what I was good at and what I was an expert at. And she made me feel really good for what I could offer and teach her. And I knew I could learn from her. So that part was really intriguing to me was that, hey, I wasn't just going into this relationship knowing that I was bringing everything. I was going into this relationship knowing that I was going to get something out of it too. So a few months later, Tim and I had our second child, Roan came along and um, we became business partners that month with Mike and Megan Tampty, along with about 20 of their friends and family, people that actually knew them. We had only known them for about three months. So um, we had one store and we had a dream to open stores in all the neighborhoods where moms lived. And I found so much fulfillment in serving and taking care of our customers. And I, I knew I was adding value to those I worked with and everyone um, that came into our doors. And it, it just felt right. We had a set of values we lived and talked about all the time. And we believed we made a difference. And, and really, Dan, we, we saw that we were making a difference. So what we really noticed and we knew from the beginning was that we didn't want to just start a fashion company. We wanted to use fashion as this vehicle to love and inspire and empower moms. And we saw fashion bring confidence to women because we helped them. Um, we helped them find the right denim fit. We, we helped them find the right tops for their body and for their lifestyle. And, and it was, it was amazing. And it was all with one store. And we felt it was so much bigger than, than that one store. It was, it was a community that we knew we could create. So, um, from that point, we just, we office out of my house and Megan's house. And, um, about a month later, we brought in our, our other business partner, Christina Clockers, and we did all the buying. We hand wrote all the orders from my dining room table. We went to market. We, we worked on the styling floor. We did absolutely everything. And we learned how to share our story and our dreams with everyone that would listen. And quite honestly, we still recruit in that same similar fashion today, which is interesting as I'm, as I'm telling you this story, I'm thinking a lot of it is still how we, we, recruit and how we run our business. So that's really my biography. That's how I got to where I am today. It's, it's amazing. Now, you had been in a very secure role in a very big, well-respected company, Marshall Fields. Everybody was familiar with that. And I'm sure that they wanted you to come back to that or another similar large department store company. But you wanted to go more on your own. You were really caught up in Megan's mission and really felt a great connection there. Is, is that partially why you made that choice to maybe leave the security and go for something much less proven? Yeah, you know, there, there were really two decisions there, Dan. The first one was really not about leaving a big company. It was about deciding to be a stay-at-home mom. 
And the hard part for me was that I realized I wasn't good at being a stay-at-home mom, or I didn't feel comfortable being a stay-at-home mom, which made me not feel successful at it. And I was around a lot of women that loved it and enjoyed it and were good at it. And I used to um, use this. And now that I'm talking to a group of Southwestern people that are familiar with what we did on the book field, I can share this, but I felt like I looked at my watch all the time when I, when I had babies at home and it was like, I was crystallizing my day and thinking I needed to get somewhere like to the next house or wherever it needed to be. But I felt like I needed to be somewhere. And it was that feeling that I always had in my head and it didn't go away for the three years I was at home. And so that first decision was to be a stay at home mom. That second decision was realizing that, um, I wasn't feeling as successful and, and then struggling with the idea of going back to work. It was a little bit easier because for me, going back to work wasn't to this big corporation, with all this structure, and I didn't really feel connected to it. It, it was a different decision. It was really uh, an, an, a decision to invest money and knowing that, that there was a great investment of emotion and time and energy that comes with that. And I was, and I'm still so passionate about what we do that it really didn't seem that crazy to start a business and, and to become a business owner with Mike and Megan. And my husband believed in me, Tim, he believed in me so much that he said, I believe you can do whatever you put your mind to. He said, I don't know Mike and Megan at all. We've known him for three months, but I believe in you and I know what you're capable of. And so it was a risk, no matter, no matter how we looked at it, yet it felt really natural, really like it was, I was meant to do this my whole life. So it was, it was a series of decisions and it felt like it just fell into place. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you started with the one store and I believe it was called Hot Mama back in the day. Yes, it was. Um, what was the expansion like? What, what led you and Megan and the partners to decide, okay, we're ready to open another store and then another store. Had you sort of laid out a vision that so many stores per year, or did it just sort of happen as you built momentum? That's a good question. Well, there's a, there's a couple questions there that that I feel like I should unpack for us. There's there's probably two. The first is that we always knew we would open a lot of stores, and we weren't sure what it was going to look like, but we knew we were going to be in all the neighborhoods where the moms were. So back in 2004, if you if we look back that far, we had a goal to open ten stores by 2010. And so we, we knew that. So that was kind of our first small goal was, okay, we're, we're going to open 10 stores and we had to figure out where they were going to be. And, and then how do we scale? Like, how do we open our second store? Well, we did that in Minnesota. So we could kind of see how to open our second store. Our third store, we opened in Glenview, Illinois, which is where Megan Tampty, my business partner went to high school. And so we were opening a store that was a plane ride away and in a different neighborhood and in, in a different city. And we, we couldn't reach out and touch people physically. It was all, you know, through the phone. So Megan spent a lot of her first year flying there once a month. And Christine and I were handling the Edina store and the Maple Grove store, which are in Minnesota. And so we looked at it from scaling where, where there were three of us and we could kind of tackle these three stores. Well, as you open more, it gets a little bit more challenging. Um, to kind of fast forward a tiny bit to give you the perspective, last year we opened, um, in 2017, we opened 17 stores. So we have 85 now. And this year we're going to open three more. 
Um, and to, to put things in perspective for us as far as scaling goes, our digital channels, the Transcend, that subscription box service, and then Evrieve.com are really growing extremely fast right now too. And so the scaling piece for us continues to change because we're opening these brick and mortars plus our transcend subscription service and Evrieve.com are now about 25% of our total sales. Whereas four or five years ago, they were two to 3% of our sales. So I guess you'd call it a good problem to have, but we are always trying to figure out scaling. It seems like it changes all the time. Um, but to take us back to that, that, that beginning spot of scaling, um, there's, it's kind of that second point I wanted to, to cover here is that there is an art and a science to the scaling of a business. And our science was charted by my Mike Tampty. And Mike is Megan's husband. He is the co-founder of our company, and he has worn many hats, um, including a CFO and now chairman of our company. He keeps us financially healthy. He sets a path for us to follow. Uh, we would we would be we would laugh about this because we were we saved a lot of money. We still do. And he would drive the three of us to market, me, Megan, and Christina. And he would, as we were driving to market, he would hand us our open to buy. And he would say, I know you girls have great taste. And I know that he would give us this pep talk and then he would hand us our numbers and say, but you have to stick to these numbers. And so we always said Mike was the rudder to our ship because he kept us financially healthy and he really kept us on the right path. And he let us do what we were really good at. And so that was that was fun. But we had to see proof that a store could earn a million dollars or trend to a million dollars within its first year. So now our stores average about a million point two a year, I would say, with our with our new and pioneering stores earning under a million in that first year. So we we open stores with profits from our existing stores and we don't really carry much debt and we don't take out loans to open stores. So we the beginning of scaling for us was that was that science piece to say, okay, we're gonna We've got, we're going to give ourselves 12 months to figure out if we can get this store to be profitable. And if we sell this much a day, Mike and Megan, who had mortgaged their house, won't lose their house. So that's really how we looked at it from the very beginning. And then it turned into, okay, we proved that we can, we can get a store to a million dollars in sales within its first year. So then what does that second year look like? And then how do we take the store we just opened and how do we duplicate that? So it was, it was very small baby steps for us in the beginning, um, especially those first two years. And the, the next piece for us that we had to figure out for scaling was the art of that business. And the art of scaling a business is from I would say from our perspective is knowing firsthand what it takes to create a successful and transformational experience. So Megan and I spent six months together um, with Christina and we were on the styling floor. We worked side by side. We learned from each other. Uh, we found success in our behaviors and Megan would ask me why I was doing things. I introduced Megan to everybody that came in the store. Uh, we would, uh, connect in a styling room. And I would say, Hey, this is Megan. She's the, she's the one that started this boutique. And we only had one at the time. And, and we would talk about these, 
these re- it was like a relationship that we were building with the customer together. And we started to realize that we were doing the same behaviors over and over and over again. And they were successful. And Megan said, hey, why, why do you do that? Or tell me what you're doing this. And she was really a student of what I was doing. And, and I was watching what she was doing. And we really kind of played off each other. And so her and Mike said, hey, why not? Why don't you come over and let's sit in our kitchen and let's let's write down the behaviors that we practice daily. So that was incredibly powerful. And I brought over this is kind of a funny story, but I brought over my selling 101 manual from my very first summer selling books. And I said, so essentially what I do is this thing called the cycle of selling and I don't feel like I'm selling because I'm really building relationships and connecting with people. Yet in order to help people, we have to, we have to go through a cycle to kind of take them on a journey with us. And so they really were intrigued by that and it made sense. And so we really developed our own cycle and we called it the hot mama experience. And, and after a certain amount of time, we ended up changing our name to Everive because we couldn't have the URL hotmama.com and we needed to be a national brand. We needed to have our URL that matched our, um, our brick and mortar store. So we um, had a, a guy that worked with us. He was a branding expert and he came up with the name Evereve. So that's, that's how we got to Evereve. But um, anyway, so we, we wrote down, it was, it was pivotal for us, but we wrote down the behaviors that we organically practiced daily. And it was things like team styling and having fun and establishing a connection and building trust authentically and building relationships and understanding the fit of clothes and, and what looks best on every body type. And um, we would have courageous conversations outside of our comfort zone and we would write that down. We would open doors for moms with strollers and we would write that down. We would bend down to talk to little kids and get at their level. We would write that down. Uh, We would practice talking to the, the guest of the person in the fitting room. So if there was somebody in our fitting room and she had a husband with her or a mother in law or a mom or a best friend and that person was sitting on the couch or sitting on a chair and was alone, we made it a practice to talk to that person and help them feel welcome. So we would write that behavior down. So we wrote down every tiny behavior and then we worked on teaching each one because at that point we had to become coaches of the behaviors that we had written. So we set these things that we call mini goals for our stylists and their little controllable behaviors that would help them be their authentic best self. And they were mini goals around the, the behaviors that we had written and we knew that they could control them. So it was pretty, um, pretty simple to us on on how to scale from that perspective. Right. Can you share an example of of a mini goal for behavior? Oh yeah. Uh, So we have, well, we have tons now and and we do something now called um, it's like our morning pace. We call it where we get people kind of their mindset ready for the day. And a mini goal, if it was a brand new person working in the store, we might say, Hey, we just want to help you feel good with your connection with the customer. So the, the mini goal would be, we want you to practice saying hi, it's a tiny goal saying hello and saying, welcome, welcome, welcome into our store. Thanks for coming in. And it's not a a sales tactic. Hello. It's a Hey, thanks for coming into our space. Welcome. Or we really appreciate you coming in today. We know you 
you walked in here and we're happy to see your face. It, it's, it's the little tiny behavior of welcoming someone into your, what we call our home. We really feel like we're the hostess of that place. So that would be like a, a really simple mini goal for somebody. Another one, what, what if you're a little more advanced and you've been with us for maybe like three weeks and you're, you're getting better and better at, at delivering a good experience, we would say, gosh, I, I really feel like you are doing such a great job right now with finding that connection with a customer where it feels like you, you see her, you understand her and you really get her. And when you get her in the fitting room and you guys are working together, one thing that would really help is if you asked her more questions about her own sense of style or more questions about what she has coming up in her life so that you understand her lifestyle and you understand what her opinion is of what you're bringing her. So we call that deepening the relationship. So we would say, well, here are like three behaviors that you can use to try to deepen the relationship this week while you're working. And we would write those down. And then after they're done, after every single uh, experience or every customer, we recap and we're like, Hey, tell me about that. How did that go? And we really are together all of the time. So we do something called team styling and it's, and it's what we do because it's how we feel comfortable. We believe that we are a group of girlfriends that you come in to shop with. So when somebody is shopping with us, we together are just saying, Hey, that that's probably not the best fit on you. Let's try to find something a little better. Or, or we will say that is probably the best fit for you. It might not be your sense of style, but it really fits your body type. And so we work together to really figure that out. So after a customer leaves, the recapping is really natural because we have fun and we want to talk about what we've done, what we've done well, what we could do better. I think that's spectacular because it involves line of sight coaching as well as collaborating, as well as recapping and moving them from simple goals to a little bit more complex goals, which, which I just think is great. I'm, I'm super interested in, in core values and philosophies, Kimberly, because clearly you have elicited a group of people and attracted a group of people that feel the way you and Megan and and the, the core leadership team feel. Um, can you share a little bit more about what Eve's core principles and values are? Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite topics. Uh, when we were writing down the behaviors of what we did, the tiny, tiny behaviors, we realized that we were teaching courage skills to women. And we felt like we struck gold because we were teaching people and ourselves to speak from our heart and to communicate and connect with someone from a really authentic place. And we realized that we were helping ourselves and these, these employees that worked in our stores with us that were our friends, we were giving them the power to be successful. We were putting that in their own hands because we were giving them specific behaviors to practice. And it, we realized it was our secret sauce because it's proven success time and time again. And we, we had these behaviors written down and we realized that organically these behaviors are really tied to a set of values. And we were all practicing the same values and they weren't just work values. They are values that we live out in our life, not our work life. But, but our life. So uh, 
as you mentioned in the beginning, our mission is to inspire moms to realize their beauty and power. So we, we've always had that mission and we had to get aligned on what that meant. And we had this deep purpose and we struggled for a quick hot minute. It wasn't that long, but with the right words to explain that clothing was not shallow and after, you know, a week or two together on that floor, writing down after we'd written down our behaviors, we realized it was far from shallow. And we realized that clothing brings confidence. And it is so much deeper than just the shallowness of, hey, there's some clothes there. Um, clothing that fits, that feels relevant, that feels age appropriate, um, that helps you put your best foot forward. Uh, it, that's that's really what, what we were trying to put words to was that we had a purpose behind that mission. And then we'd written down these behaviors. So we had all these layers down that we, we really knew and we believed in, and it was a solid foundation. So we realized that we, when your heart is in the right place, everything falls in line and you can, you can live your most authentic life. So we have these five core values that follow the acronym HEART, H-E-A-R-T, and we attract employees that are drawn to these values. And so they are humility, empathy, authenticity, relationships, and tenacity. And they, the thing about these values is they cover all things that are important to us. And we call them life skills. Um, life skills are things that we want to teach our children, qualities that we look for in our friends and in our spouse. And we, we look at it from, we, we really break down all five of these values into many points. Um, there are things tied into every value. So it could be always learning, um, having an open mind to learn from anyone, being compassionate, being confident, um, being vulnerable, um, having uh, empathy or compassion, um, being courageous, uh, you name it. We've, we have tied being tenacious about your goals and persistent and not giving up. We, we have tied in every one of our behaviors that we practice on the floor into these values. And we found that these values empower and they may feel soft and yet they are our values for success. And one of the best gifts we can give our employees that these values when practice bring success and drive results in life, not just work, but in life. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And in fact, I was going to ask you, how do you deal with so much competition? And I think I already have the answer. <laughs> you, you don't have to, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about competition when your people have the right values, when they're practicing the right behaviors and when it is so authentic because it's based on life, not just making sales and working with clothing, uh, I think you have revealed uh, really the heart, not to steal your acronym, but the heart of why Everive has done as well as it's done, which is phenomenal. If we can kind of shift to the other side, uh, any career that is bound to have faced some really big problems, some really big setbacks, when you feel like you're bumping up against a brick wall or you just can't see any daylight, what are, what are some things that you tend to think about and, and actions that you tend to take? <laughs> There's a lot of trial and error in that space. Um, <laughs> in the 13 years of, of building and growing our business, um, it started out from handling problems and setbacks, started in a, from a really small scale. And kind of like scaling your business, you scale your problems probably is one way to look at it. Um, but there were four of us in the beginning that were founding leaders. It was me, Mike, Megan, and Christina. And Mike told us that we were the four legs of a stool and we all had to support the stool. 
So that was a great visual for me. So that meant we didn't blame. We looked internally for answers. We talked through things together and we all worked towards the same purpose. Mm -hmm. And that was originally how we handled problems and setbacks was, okay, if, if I have something going on, I have to look at myself and figure out, does it have to do with how I wrote this order or how I handled the situation in the store or how I hired this person? And, and then we would, we would talk about it together, but it was really about owning what your contribution was to it. Even this day when something doesn't go as planned, we have many departments now and each department looks at what they can control to improve a situation. Uh, everyone has some behavior they can change or a strategy that can be improved, but that's really the, the first thing I think about when I think about problems and setbacks. There's a, there's a couple of other things that I think about though, Dan, and um, in times of extreme difficulty, what I have learned is that you need to invite trust from your team and from the people you're working with and from your business partners and um, from the people that report to you. So your team has to come with you to create change. So being vulnerable is important for them to see that you own your part in the trouble. Um, and I can explain that like, we believe vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. So uh, when you can be confident in your skills, but then also honest or vulnerable about where you're struggling, what, what, I find that we do then is you, I'm giving somebody an opportunity to invite them to help me out. I invite them to show me how to use their gifts to add value to what, what the problem is right now. And so we're always learning, never done growing. So when you make a mistake, you own it, you learn from it, you make a change to improve performance. So, um, it's part of how we recruit. It's part of how we handle problems and setbacks. We've hired people that, are invested in our core values of H-E-A-R-N-T. And they are hired because they know they are, they are gaining something from the relationship and what they're getting and the purpose that they have and the fulfillment they have from working. And they also know that they are adding value by using their gifts at work. So it really changes the perspective of, hey, we're against this problem. We're alone. We're against this wall. It's really a group think of what do I own and how do I work with the people around me to make this the best? Um, another thing that I've had to do in the past is seek out a peer that I trust or a mentor or a friend or Tim, my spouse. I mean, he's helped me a lot as a sounding board because we all have blind spots and I don't know what my blind spots are. I know I have a lot of them. And I need somebody to give me their perspective or their reality because it's definitely different than mine. But I do see that having a person or two that I trust to bounce things off of during those hard times has been really pivotal for me in, in making progress. Um, what I do want to say to any entrepreneur out there, any leader of a company, there's really no one person that's going to pick you up and dust you off. You need to figure out how to pick yourself up and how to fill your own bucket because no one else is going to do it for you. That was probably, gosh, one of the hardest things to learn as a, as a entrepreneur or as a business owner, whatever you want to call it, a founding leader. And there's about five points that, that I've kind of go back to every single time I'm in a rut. The first one is pray and spend time alone. Um, I, I am, I don't have patience. We do a, um, a personality test. And one of the things that we, we measure is patience. 
and my patience is embarrassingly off the chart to the point that I don't have any. So that would be a blind spot I have. And I have to work really hard at that. And uh, I'm not a journaler and I'm not great at making lists. But if I can spend some time alone, I can write down what I can control or what problem I'm trying to solve. And then I write down tons of questions, Dan's not, not, not answers, but I write down questions. So I dig deep with the questions that I ask myself. And there is something for me personally about writing down a list of questions of either what I'm trying to solve or what's getting in my way that somewhere in there, the answer bubbles up. So I would say that spending time alone, um, whatever it is that you need to do, for if some people are journalers and I just, I'm not, but that's how I do it. <clears throat> the second thing would be assemble a strong group of, of friends that will tell you the truth and love you no matter what. Uh, the third thing is develop a strong relationship with your spouse. Um, and do they need to listen without solving your problem? And that took Tim and I a little bit of time to figure out, but that's how Tim usually wins is I don't want him to solve my problem. I just want him to listen. I found that when he tried to solve a problem for me, when I was, when I was sharing him, what I was frustrated with or what wall I was up against, I actually would get mad at him and he would be like, why are you getting mad at me? I'm trying to help you. And I had to let him know, Hey, I don't need you to solve it. I just need you to listen to me. And so that was a big piece. So that was my third thing. I, I, I do that consistently. The fourth thing I do is write down the top five things that I've accomplished. Um, even an example would be, you asked me to go through my biography. I went through my biography in the beginning and those are things I've accomplished. And sometimes I can forget those things, but quite honestly, I gave myself a lot of experience. I leaned in a ton. I did a ton of things that I'm proud of that were hard and I got myself there. And so when you write those things down, it's amazing how good it can make you feel. And it may not give you the answers, but it's certainly going to give you some confidence in yourself. And then finally, and I think this is the most important skill that we teach our, our employees is be an advocate for yourself. I also try to teach this to my children. Uh, Megan, my business partner, whenever she's in a rut, Dan, she writes handwritten letters to people daily to dig herself out of her hole. And I love it because it's a controllable behavior that she does. What I do is I would stop in Megan's office every day when I was in a rut and I would tell her something I was proud of accomplishing, or I would tell her some small progress that I had made. And the best part is she would celebrate with me and I don't do it as much anymore, but I still stop in her office whenever we're both in town or I've got something that maybe I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I'm not feeling the best about where I'm at right now, but I am feeling like there's one or two things I'm doing well. So I will tell her, hey, I'm excited about this or I'm proud of this. And to this day, she still celebrates with me. And I think find yourself someone like that, that will celebrate those little tiny accomplishments with you. So I think, you know, there's no one answer on how to dig yourself out of a setback. But I do think that there are some controllable things that you should do and that we all can do for ourselves. And to figure out what those are is one of the most important things you can do for yourself. Oh, Kimberly, that is the most incredible set of processes and attitudes for just dealing with those setbacks and those problems. It's it's phenomenal. Thank you so much. I imagine that also helps you avoid uh, a sense of complacency because many people like yourself and your husband have achieved terrific financial success in business, you know, being far beyond the point where you, quote, have to work. What, what do you do to keep your fire burning so brightly in terms of self-motivation and avoiding this voice that we call Mr. Mediocrity. <laughs> well, I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable here. Um, I don't burn right every day of every week. And, you know, we all know it's not possible to run at that level. What I want to talk about is what is possible. 
And what helped me avoid Mr. Mediocrity is that idea of being committed to being a better version of myself than I was yesterday. Some days it looks different when I'm really kind of struggling or I'm going through those setbacks. And some days I'm on fire and it's pretty easy to think about those things, right? It's turning me into somebody that I'm excited about becoming. And I don't get so worried about what title I'm trying to have or if I'm hitting that specific goal. I'm much more worried about myself and what I can control. Mm -hmm. I hope that answered the question. Mm -hmm. It, It definitely does. Time with you flies incredibly fast, Kimberly. You are you are what we call a conscious competent. You you know what leads to your success and you're able to share it with others. I wonder if you wouldn't mind kind of wrapping with just your thoughts of what what you as a teacher might share with our listeners right now that are facing extreme difficulties in their businesses. They could be financial difficulties, they could be losing market share, it could be technologies creeping in, it could be foreign competition, it could be tariffs that they're dealing with. What would you advise somebody if they're facing extreme difficulties right now in their business? Oh, that's a good question, Dan. Um, well, you know, there's a, there's a couple things that come to mind. And in every business, as you just mentioned, the problems look different. And I would say if, if, you're, if you're facing extreme difficulty right now, think about what are you responsible for and are you owning it? Um, have you hired people that have different strengths than you so that your team is well-rounded? Or, or have you hired a ton of people that are just like you? Um, are you a perfectionist? Mike Tampty, my business partner, had said to me for years, and it actually is one of those phrases that drives me crazy, and yet I love it, but done is better than perfect. I am a recovering perfectionist. Um, I would not do a PowerPoint or write something down because I was so afraid it wouldn't be right. And then I realized if I just got my thoughts down, even if it was bad, at least I had them down in version one, I could check off my list and I like lists. I love checking things off. So that done is better than perfect is one of those mottos when you're facing something with extreme difficulty of how are you making this a, a bigger deal in your head than it really is? So those would be a couple things I would think about. Oh, I think that's fantastic. I'm going to apply those today in my life. So <laughs> thank you so much. Kimberly, we're, we're going to have to wrap up this, this episode of Action Catalyst. I have to say on behalf of all of our listeners, your example, your values, the way you live your life, you, the way you're focused on your family, you're focused on your colleagues, associates, and above all, the impact you're having on women, incredibly inspiring. You are what the Action Catalyst is all about. Thank you. So our thanks to you on behalf of all of our many listeners, and we wish you and Evereve, particularly you and Tim and Peyton and Roan, much happiness and much continued success as time goes on. Thank you, Dan. It was an honor. It was an honor being able to share what's important to me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.